Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 5. It will be one verse, verse 17. I ask that you join with me as I read this chapter. And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we enjoy hearing your word. We enjoy learning about you. Every day that we hear your word, see if there are changes that we need to make to make our lives conform to your will. Father, we ask that your blessing be upon the pastor to deliver his message. This we ask in our Lord, Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be looking, kind of zooming in before we really exposit the next few paragraphs. We're going to look today at three groups of people are very important in the Gospels. You may have heard of these, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They are all over the Gospels, and they have frequent interactions with Jesus. And so the next three sermons are going to be uh, different encounters that Jesus has specifically with the Pharisees. And so that's what we're going to talk about this week uh, to kind of set the backdrop, and I hope that makes sense. Uh, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they're called the doctors of the law in this text. It's the same group. Pharisees and the Sadducees were opposites in many ways. The scribes were typically also Pharisees. I'll explain that in a minute. But our text today, Luke 5.17 says, It came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were doctors of the law, and that's referring to scribes, that were sitting by which had come up every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And so uh, these were groups of people that were prevalent in Jesus' day. And you'll find them, again, all over the Gospels, especially a little bit toward the end of the New Testament as you get into Acts and some of the other epistles, but mostly in the Gospels. And Jesus has very few good things to say about either one of these, any of these three groups, but uh, we'll talk about that later. Acts 23.9, we're going to start with the scribes. Acts 23.9 gives us a good uh, indication that many of the scribes were Pharisees. It says, there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose. So here you have scribes that were also Pharisees. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees were religious groups that had uh, different belief systems, whereas a scribe, that was a profession. And so it would be sort of like being a plumber and a Christian. Those are not mutually exclusive. So a Pharisee, Sadducee, that's a, a religious distinction. Whereas a scribe was your occupation. Someone who was a scribe by trade could be a Pharisee by religious distinction. And it seems that most, or at least many, of the scribes were Pharisees. Scribes had knowledge of the law, and they, it was their responsibility to draft legal documents, like marriage contracts, bills of divorce, uh, loans, inheritance, mortgages, and even sales of land. And so many of the, the scribes, as I said before, because they, uh, many of them were Pharisees, or at least they were very closely aligned Theologically, with the Pharisees, Jesus tends to group them together. That's why you find in the Gospels many times uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus this, that, and the other thing. And so they tend to be on the same page. There's a lot of overlap between those two groups. The scribes in verse 9 in Acts 23, you see they believed in spirits and angels. You find the rest of the verse there. If you go back one verse, you'll see this description of the Sadducees. 
Acts 23 verse 8 says, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And that really gives you kind of the, the backdrop of what they disagreed on so much. The Sadducees denied anything supernatural. They did not believe that there was an afterlife. They denied that there would be a resurrection of dead people. They denied that there was any angels or demons. And so, essentially, they were very uh, naturalistic in their thinking. They also accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament as their authority. So if you were a Sadducee, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that was basically your authority. Whereas Pharisees had much more than that, as we'll talk about later. i got a Venn diagram here that explains uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they relate. They agreed on some things... But essentially, they were on opposite ends of Judaism with very little overlap. Their practices were different, their beliefs were different, their authorities were different, uh, because the Sadducees rejected the oral traditions of the Pharisees, which we'll talk about more. One thing they agreed on, though, was that they both disliked Jesus, uh, and they both caused all sorts of problems for Christ. And they, they disliked Jesus for different reasons. The Pharisees disliked Jesus because he routinely broke their traditions, uh, and he also just regularly pointed out their hypocrisy, whereas the Sadducees disliked Jesus because he threatened their position of political and religious power. They were the Jewish elites of their day, so they felt very threatened by Christ. So that's kind of a quick introduction to set the landscape. Now the rest of this morning we're really going to focus in on the Pharisees, because I think we have uh, perhaps most to learn from them as conservative Christians today. Jesus had many interactions with the Pharisees, far more with them than the Sadducees. The Sadducees, there's actually very little interaction in the Gospel, whereas the Pharisees, it seems like every page, Jesus is blasting them about something. You'll not find mention of the Pharisees in the Old Testament because it seems that they came into existence uh, after the Old Testament and before Jesus. So those 400 years between the end of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, that's where the Pharisees came into existence, was somewhere in between. The word Pharisee means set apart or separated. They were the strictest of the religious crowd in Jesus' day. They tried to be as righteous as possible following the 611 Old Testament commands, as well as uh, many others that they added to it. Listen to Paul's description of himself in Acts 26. He says, Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul is giving his testimony of his life before he met Jesus. And he says, I was a Pharisee. And he describes it as the most strict religious part of the Jewish system, basically. It would be the ultra-fundamentalism of Judaism. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been a shock to the people of Jesus' day, because the Pharisees were looked at as the most righteous people because they held all of these laws, and they lived by a strict code. The Pharisees were known not just for their strict obedience to the commands of the Bible, but they went farther than that. Their desire to not break any of the laws led them to developing an elaborate set of regulations in addition to the actual laws of the Old Testament. It's been described as setting up a fence. Uh, so basically, in order to keep from sinning, you set up a fence around the sin, so you stayed at a distance. God's laws keep us from sin. The Pharisees wanted to make sure they never crossed over into sin, so they set up that, that fence to stay even further away. So, for instance, if the law says, don't work on the Sabbath, that wasn't concrete enough for them. They had to define what, what is work, how to, what constitutes as work. 
And so there were all sorts of rules. That, for instance, if you were a writer, because your occupation was writing, you couldn't pick up a pen on the Sabbath day that was considered working, even if you were writing a grocery list, uh, because they, they, they just established that as a rule. They had countless laws about what was permissible and what wasn't on the Sabbath, based upon really their own opinions. And they lived their lives according to these strict codes that are laid out in the Talmud. I remember when I was in college, I decided I was going to read through the Talmud. I didn't make it even halfway through. It's so long and so meticulous. It's really the repository of um, all of the, the basically thousands of years of Jewish history, all of the extra laws that they added to the Bible. It's known in the Gospels as the tradition of the elders. These laws were ever expanding because the Pharisees thought that when you encountered a new situation, you needed to make a new rule about how the law applied to that new situation. All of it was an attempt originally to keep God's law and to live holy lives at first, but it quickly became a problem. An example of this was the practice of walking around with their eyes shut to keep from lusting after any women they might see. Their frequent injuries from this practice gave them the nickname the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Gives you an example of their attempt at piety. Now, at this point, I'm going to give you the title of my sermon along with some needed clarifications, lest I be misunderstood. My sermon title is The Dangers of Biblically Based Standards. Biblically based standards are not bad in and of themselves, but they need to be handled with care. There's plenty of good things that can also be dangerous. I consider cars to be good things. I'm very glad I have a car. But there's a few things you need to know before you put a teenager behind the wheel. You need, to, you need to recognize that there are dangers even to good things. The whole point of a biblically-based standard is to protect you from the danger of sin. And it seems like it would be a safe thing to have as many fences between you and the actual sin as possible. But what we learn from the Pharisees is that there are pitfalls for those who do try to live this way. And it's possible that in your attempt to not fall into the ditch, you actually end up falling off a cliff on the other end. Put another way... The opposite of wrong isn't always right. Sometimes it's a different kind of wrong. First thing I'd like to clarify before we get into this is that holiness is not a bad thing. God is holy and he commands that we be holy as well. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. All true followers of Jesus are commanded to live holy lives or face the judgment of God. In other words, holiness is part of what it means to be a true Christian. So the Pharisees were not wrong in wanting to be holy and live strict lives of obedience to the commands of Scripture. Second clarification I would make is that biblically-based standards are not necessarily wrong either. It's a good idea if you want to obey the Bible to set up standards to help you do that. Allow me to provide a, an illustration. There's a witty little kids movie you may have heard of called Mr. Peabody and Sherman. It came out a few years ago. It was, it was one of those animated films that's actually kind of funny even if you're an adult. Uh, but the, the beginning part of the plot, Mr. Peabody tells his adopted son, Sherman, he, he built a time machine, and he tells his son, uh, don't ever, under any circumstances, go in the time machine. Now, you all already know exactly what's going to happen in the movie. You know that the plot of the movie is Sherman disobeys and goes in the time machine and it causes a big problem. Now, whether you've seen the movie or not, you know that that's what's going to happen. And you know this because we all know something about humanity, that we have a proclivity toward disobedience. We have a sin in nature. God tells Adam and Eve on the beginning pages of Genesis not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, and we know the very next thing that's going to happen. They're going to eat of it, and they're going to fall into sin. Wouldn't it have been wise for Adam to put a fence around the tree, to put a big wall and to say, I don't ever want to cross that line? 
Wouldn't it have been a good idea for Mr. Peabody to lock the door to the the time machine, lest Sherman be tempted to enter? That's the idea behind biblically-based standards. It's a rule that you put up as a barrier to keep you from sinning. So it's not a bad thing. In this sermon, I'm, I'm not advocating that we all waltz up to the tree and eat of the fruit God said not to. That would be unholy living. I'm also not saying that we should get as close to the tree as possible. I do think it's, there's wisdom in keeping ourselves at a distance. The problem is we don't all put our fences down in the same place. Some of us decide that we're going to keep a, a distance from sin and we put up a fence with a five-foot radius from the tree. Others of us decide to put the, fi- the fence 500 feet away so we can barely even see the tree. The sin is not having the closer fence. The sin is actually eating of the tree. The key, then, is that we don't teach other people that they have to put their fence exactly where we do. We each need to study Scripture and seek the Holy Spirit's leading on where your standards should be set. And if we don't all end up with the same set of codes, Romans 14 would suggest that's actually okay. One final clarification. Uh, We need to distinguish at the outset what we're talking about. Biblically-based standards are not the same thing as clear biblical commands. To disobey uh, a clear biblical command is always sin, whereas to violate someone else's standard may not be wise, but it may not also necessarily be sin. In other words, there's room to disagree on where we draw the line when it comes to standards in our personal lives. There is no wiggle room when it comes to clear biblical commands. Hope that makes sense. In other words, if I put my fence 10 feet away from the tree and you put yours 5 feet away, I have no right to tell you that you're in sin just because you don't keep as much of a distance as me. But if I hop the fence and take a bite of the fruit, I can't just claim I have a different preference. No, because there we're actually violating Scripture. We may come to different conclusions about standards, but we dare not fall into the trap of calling good what God calls evil. Now, we're going to begin our study at this point. I wanted to give those clarifications so that I'm not misunderstood. We're going to begin really zooming in on the Pharisees. We're going to look at particular errors that are pointed out by Jesus. Regularly, Jesus pointed out problems that the Pharisees had. I'm calling these Pharisaical follies. These are sinful attitudes and actions that make these seemingly holy people actually hypocrites. And as we do this, I want to encourage each of us to draw a circle around ourselves and think about how you might be like the Pharisees in some ways. It's easy for us to look at these pharisaical follies and to think of someone else who fits that description. Uh, Someone who maybe is more conservative than you or somebody who has higher standards than you. I want to encourage you to quickly get those thoughts out of your mind and focus back on yourself. Before you attempt to remove the beam from your brother's eye, examine your own life. The first pharisaical folly is that they enforce their personal standards on others. The law of God was supposed to be a guide for the Jews. The Pharisees multiplied minute applications of the law to such an extent that the whole life of the Jew was hemmed in and burdened on every side by instructions so numerous that they often got off track from what the intention of the laws were to begin with. For instance, a Pharisee, this is an example of how strict they were. You couldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath day because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, which would be work. And so they just set up the fence way far away from work and said, don't even look in a mirror on the Sabbath. That's the type of strict rules that they lived by. They elevated their standards of separation to the level of scriptural commands. They taught others that that they had to abide by their standards or else they would be breaking the law. On Matthew 15, Jesus says about them, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
They didn't just try to live strict lives themselves by these high standards. They taught that everybody else had to abide by their standards. It's one thing for you to decide for yourself that in order to not break a commandment, you're going to have a strict standard. It's a different thing altogether to teach everyone else and to expect everyone else to abide by your standard that's, that's stricter than Scripture. Here's a, a few examples of this. Matthew 12, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. He's walking through a cornfield. And his disciples were, they're hungry, and they began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat. Uh, uh, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. The Pharisees hated Jesus. He didn't abide by their rules. He regularly violated their standards, though he never violated the commands of Scripture. A good example of this is Matthew 7, where it says, There came together unto him the Pharisees and certain scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. So part of the tradition of the Pharisees was you never eat without washing your hands first. Is there anything wrong with that practice? Of course not. I think many of us probably abide by a similar rule. We generally don't eat uh, if we haven't washed our hands. The problem was they forced this standard on everyone else and elevated it to the level of a scriptural command. So in this case, they see the disciples are eating bread when they haven't washed their hands. And so they say to Jesus in verse 5, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? What are they doing? They shouldn't be doing this. Jesus responds to them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? As it is written, These people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain that you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. The issue was not the fact that the Pharisees decided they were going to wash their hands before eating. The issue was they considered it sinful for somebody else not to. So this is the first error of the Pharisees. They elevated their codes of conduct that were based on the laws of Scripture to the level of the laws of Scripture themselves. God help us not to be Pharisees. Second, Pharisaical folly is they focused on externals. In other words, they were hypocrites. Continuing on in the passage in Mark, Jesus says this of the Pharisees, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him. He's talking there about food. Uh, eating with unwashed hands doesn't make you a sinner. Verse 19. Because it entereth not into his heart, uh, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. So Jesus is saying, eating without washing your hands does not make you sinful in God's sight. Nothing external entering your mouth is going to defile you, but rather that which is in your heart coming out. He goes on in verse 20, he says, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, 
and defile the man. The Pharisees were very focused on keeping the laws externally, with little concern for their inward sins. They made sure they looked good on the outside and appeared righteous to everyone around them, but in their hearts they were hypocrites. And you notice in this list of sins, these are all things that Jesus mentions that no one would know about you. If you have an evil eye, if you're lascivious, if you have pride, people don't, those are not necessarily apparent. Those are things in your heart. And Jesus says you're focusing on the wrong things. Luke eleven thirty eight. when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. This is again a similar situation. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, You think as long as you do all the right things in the eyes of men, you're right with God. Pharisees were hypocrites because they focused on externals. They wanted to appear righteous in the eyes of men, but they were blind to the sins of their hearts. The secret sins that nobody else knew about weren't a problem for the Pharisees, because after all, nobody else knows about those. They were concerned about what others thought, not about how God viewed them. Jesus said in Matthew 23, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They love sitting on the platforms. They love people calling them teacher. They love that people looked at them as these pious religious leaders. He, he continues in verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour men's widows and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. They prayed for a really long time in order to appear more spiritual than others. By the way, let me just acknowledge here the dangers of public prayer. There is a danger in praying in front of people. It's easy to be more concerned with what they think about what you're saying than what God thinks. More important than your public prayers are the prayers that you pray in secret. That's why Jesus taught his disciples. When you pray, go to your house, go into the closet and shut the door. And pray to your father in secret. The Pharisees would have never done this because they wanted their righteous deeds to be seen by everyone else. After all, that's the whole reason why we do good things, right? Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye, have to, ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Love the way Jesus talks in the gospel sometimes. The Pharisees apparently took inventory of their spices at home and made sure that they gave 10% back to God. They were very strict about their tithing rules, but they lacked far more important things like mercy towards others. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. Verse 25, he continues, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within... They are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them might be clean also. What a great illustration. Who wants to drink out of a cup that looks clean on the outside, but is filthy on the inside? Of course not. Now, it's, good. it's a good idea to have a clean cup on the outside too, but the most important thing is that the inside of the cup be clean. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You've got your priorities wrong. Verse 27, he continues... Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like whited sepulchers. Uh, that basically means a, a morgue that's painted all pretty on the outside, which indeed appear beautiful outward, 
but are within full of dead men's bones and of uncleanness. Even so, ye also appear right outwardly, appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Again, another vivid analogy Jesus uses to describe the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They're like beautiful tombs, uh, painted white on the outside, but inside they're full of dead bodies. On the outside, the Pharisees appeared righteous unto men, but on the inside, where only God sees, they were full of hypocrisy and sin. In verse uh, Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Jesus concludes his statement about the Pharisees in Matthew in this way. He says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? God doesn't judge like man. You won't impress God with your outward deeds of righteousness like you might other people. And these Pharisees who appeared so righteous and so holy in the sight of others were headed for the judgment of God because they were blind to their own sin. I want to read for you a quote that I read from an article this week. It said, One of the dangers of legalism is that it shortcuts the need for integrity. When godliness isn't measured in holiness and maturity, but by how your life looks relative to others, there's no need to discipline your heart and mind. Sin that no one else can see essentially don't count, and you wind up living a hypocritical double double life. Your outward behavior might look godly, but it's a worthless facade if your heart is still dominated by selfishness, lust, hatred, and pride. It's very easy for followers of Christ to be like the Pharisees, more focused on externals and how we appear to other people than purity of heart. God help us not to be Pharisees. Third problem with the Pharisees, they focus so much on the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of the law. The law says it's a violation to drive the speed limit. But we understand that there are circumstances in which it's actually wrong not to violate the speed limit. For instance, If your wife is pregnant and she's about to give birth in the car, uh, the law requires you to violate the speed limit and get to the hospital as quickly as possible. In fact, if a police officer pulls you over for speeding, uh, he's supposed to give you an escort and allow you to break the speed limit. So we understand that in that situation, the spirit of the law is about safety and the the woman's need to get to the hospital quickly is deemed more important than the strict observance of the 35 mile an hour sign. We'll look at a couple examples of this. Luke 13, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. So this woman has a physical affliction that clearly crippled her. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now this, this should be a happy occasion for everybody there. Uh, this woman for 12, I'm sorry, for 18 years uh, had been living in miserable pain, and Jesus just healed her. This is great. But look at the reaction of the religious leaders, verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and then therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. He is mad because Jesus healed this lady and transformed her life on the Sabbath. Jesus rebukes him and says, the Lord, uh, the Lord then answered and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? That's a great example of this. If it's the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to be leading your animals around because that's considered work, 
Uh, does that mean you let them uh, be thirsty all day? Of course not. You go bring them to the well because you understand that caring for those animals is important. Verse 16. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Another example is Matthew 12. When he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. His hand was, was messed up. He couldn't extend it. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? So similar situation. The Pharisees are asking Jesus if it's permissible to heal on the Sabbath day. He responds in verse 11, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much, uh, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So yes, it might be a sin to lift up a sheep on the Sabbath day. But does that mean you leave him in a pit when he falls in it and it happens to be the Sabbath? Of course not. Jesus gives a great example here of how law-keeping gone wild can be a problem. There are times when strict observance to the letter of the law misses the whole point. And Jesus says, if it's okay to help an animal on the Sabbath, even if it might require a bit of work technically, it's all right to help a human be healed of this terrible affliction on the Sabbath. So the rest of the story, he says to the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like the others. The Pharisee, then the Pharisees went out and held a counsel against him how they might destroy him. The Pharisees were so focused on the letter of the law, they could not conceive of any justification for violating it. A great example of this is the Good Samaritan, where the religious guy wouldn't help the dying man because to touch him would make you ritually unclean. The observance of that law was deemed more important than helping someone who was dying. Again, we need to establish that we're not talking about good ends to justify the means of sinning. What we're talking about is that there are times when it would be a worse sin to abide by your standard than to break it. I'm going to give an example of this, a standard that I personally live by, which I think you'll agree is a pretty good standard. Generally, I don't touch women that aren't my wife. I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb, right? And I think my wife appreciates that. However, if I were out here standing on the stairs, let's say it's February and there's ice all over the stairs, and an elderly lady walks by me and begins to fall, would it be better for me to reach out by her arm and help lift her, or to say, nope, that violates my standard and let her fall? And so even though I try to keep uh, distance from other women, and I think that's a good standard, that doesn't mean that there's not some times when violating that standard is actually the right thing to do. They're, the Pharisees didn't understand this. They, they would brag about the fact that they let the old lady fall down the steps, even while she's limping down the sidewalk with a broken ankle. God help us not to be Pharisees. The next problem with the Pharisees is they were judgmental toward others who they considered to be worse sinners. The Pharisees looked down on those who they viewed as sinners and refused to associate with them. Associating with sinners was another thing Jesus did all the time that frustrated the Pharisees. We see in Mark 2.16, When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? They couldn't believe this. You're not supposed to have a meal with somebody that's not as perfectly righteous as us. You might be familiar with the story Jesus told of a, a typical Pharisee in Luke 18. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. God, thank you so much for making me so much better than this guy. 
They thought that they were so much better than everyone else because of their strict laws and standards of separation. And this caused them to look down on everybody else. And they were so blind that they didn't recognize their own pride. This is an easy trap for us to fall into if we abide by standards of holiness, which again, I want to make clear, we should have strict standards of holiness. I'm not saying that those are bad things. But it's easy for us to begin to look down our nose at everybody else who isn't as holy as us. The issue is not that you need to be less holy or that you need to lower your personal standards. The issue is a matter of the heart. Think about the person that you consider to be a worse sinner than you. Maybe a Christian friend that you consider to be, that you, that you look at judgmentally and you think, man, he doesn't live as righteously as I do. And ask yourself, when was the last time you honestly prayed to the Lord for them? When was the last time you loved them and demonstrated your love for them? Are you so busy keeping your distance and telling others about how much better you are? God help us not to be Pharisees. Jesus got right up close to sinners, not in order to participate in their sin, but to love them and to help them out of it. Last error of the Pharisees we're going to look at is their rejection of Jesus. We see in Matthew 12 the reaction of the Pharisees to Jesus' teaching and miracles. We're told that the scribes and the Pharisees demanded proof from Jesus of who he was claiming to be. Certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. You're claiming to be this uh, king of the Jews. You're claiming to be the Son of God. Give us some sort of evidence. By the way, this comes right after Jesus had cast demons out of someone. So I guess that wasn't enough evidence for them. They demanded a sign as proof. Yet when Jesus did miraculous things, it was never enough to satisfy them. Uh, John 9, I can't resist going here. This is such a great and honestly humorous story uh, to illustrate this. Not, John 9, 13. They brought, uh, this, this comes right after Jesus healed a man who was blind from his birth. Okay, He's been blind his whole life. Jesus heals him. He can now see. And verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. So they asked the blind person, how is it that you're seeing now? He said unto them, he, Jesus, put clay on, uh, upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. So the man tells the Pharisees, I was blind. Uh, Jesus put clay on my eyes, told me to go wash, and now I can see. Okay, pretty straightforward. Look at their reaction. Verse 16. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, speaking of Jesus, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was division among them. So the Pharisees see this undeniable sign from Jesus. They knew this man. He had been blind his whole life. He had been a beggar. And now he can see. But they just can't accept the fact that Jesus is from God. They decide to ask the man who was blind for his opinion. On who Jesus was. Verse 17. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him? Uh, that he, he hath opened thine eyes. He, that's the blind man, said, He is a prophet, speaking of Jesus. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So they said, You know what? Maybe this guy is not actually the blind guy that we saw begging on the street the other day. Maybe this is a look-alike. That would explain our situation. So they call the parents of this man to verify that it's truly him. Verse 19, they ask him, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we, do not, uh, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. 
These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So they're kicking people out of the synagogue if they believe Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age asking. So the, the parents confirmed, yes, this man was our son. He was born blind, and we don't know how he was healed. You should talk to him about it. And so they called the man that was blind, again, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. They're trying to get this man who was blind to say Jesus is a sinner, not a prophet of God. Verse 25, he answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. It's a pretty compelling response. I love the response of this man. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I know that I was blind and this guy healed me. The Pharisees continue to question him. Verse 26, they say to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? That's the ultimate question. Would you be a, a disciple of Jesus if you were really convinced that he healed me? I've already explained to you what he did, how he healed me, and you didn't listen. Are you going to be convinced to follow Christ if I tell you a second time? And they respond in verse 28. They reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. So we know that God spoke to Moses. That's why we follow him. This fellow Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. I love the, the response of this man, dripping with sarcasm. Verse 30. The man answered and said unto him, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the wor world began, was it not heard that uh, sorry? It uh, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. That should be the mic drop moment. The guy just pointed out their inconsistent unbelief. Jesus had to be from God because he's doing these miraculous things no one's ever done before. And listen to the response of the Pharisees. They, they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. They would not receive correction from this man because they considered him to be beneath them. And despite the overwhelming evidence, they rejected Jesus. They knew Jesus was uh, legit. They knew his miracles that he was doing were real. And yet they refused to accept him. Their hearts were so hardened that they wouldn't see who Jesus was. They could not accept that someone who didn't keep their strict standards and do everything their way could possibly be from God. God help us not to be Pharisees. The Pharisees had many problems. They enforced strict personal standards on everybody else. They focused on externals instead of the heart. They focused on strict observance to the letter of the law, even at the expense of breaking far more important biblical commands. They were judgmental toward others, and they rejected Jesus. But not all of them. There were some exceptions. We know of at least one Pharisee who discerned that Jesus was from God, and that's Nicodemus. We find his story in John chapter 3, where it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Pharisees were separated people. They were trying to live holy lives and follow meticulously the commands of the Bible. 
But the Pharisees needed to be born again. You might be trying to live a good, holy life in the sight of God and follow the commands of the Bible, but Jesus said, that's not enough. You must be born again. We are all sinners. No matter how much we clean up the outside, God sees our sinful hearts. We all stand condemned by God because of our sin. We deserve judgment, even the Pharisees among us. Maybe especially the Pharisees among us. Those who appear to be the most righteous and godly. We must be born again if we want to enter the kingdom of God. Being born again means repenting of your sins and believing the gospel. Turning to God, placing your faith in Christ to save you. Not on the basis of your own righteous deeds, but because of Jesus' righteousness applied to you. You've heard me explain this many times, but when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin on himself. And he offers you his righteousness that can be applied to your account so you can be acceptable in the eyes of God and not face his judgment. When a sinner humbles himself and turns in faith to Christ, he is born again. And that is the primary need of all mankind, even the Pharisees. I want to read a quick portion of an article from gotquestions.org. I recommended this resource to you in the past, a lot of good information there. It says, Jesus condemned the Pharisees' self-righteousness, uh, self-righteous hypocrisy because it blinded them from seeing their need for repentance and a Savior. Many Pharisees prided themselves in their strict avoidance of obvious outward sin, but they refused to look inside themselves and acknowledge the presence of inner sin that didn't fall within the boundaries of their man-made rules. Jesus knew that in spite of their obsession with outward perfection, they willfully resisted conscientiousness of their inner corruption and need for grace. Known sinners weren't full of self-righteous pride, deliberately concealing their hidden sins behind a legalistic facade of righteousness. Jesus was keenly ironic when he said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. He knew the Pharisees weren't righteous, but their pretense of righteousness kept them from accepting the only remedy for their condition, repentance and faith in him. If you feel this morning that you might be a Pharisee, trying to earn God's favor by living righteously, Jesus says to you, you must be born again. I'm going to close this morning with an application to the the saved Pharisees among us. Probably many of us fit into this category. Sometimes true Christians who have been born again can still have Pharisaical tendencies. We see this even in in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15. It says, There arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So these were former Pharisees who had come to Christ, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. I'm not going to get into all of what that's about. But the Pharisees, these are, are followers of Jesus who were Pharisees. And they were demanding of the Gentiles who were coming to Christ that they had to follow all of their laws. They were Pharisees who were born again, and they needed to recognize that they may have brought some of their former tendencies into Christianity, and many of us do this as well. It's not our job to force everyone else to abide by our standards of holiness. There are some standards of separation that are good for us to have, but they need to be personal standards, not standards you expect everyone else to live up to. The code of conduct created by the Pharisees destroyed the freedom of individual followers of God to discern for themselves. It created a judgmental spirit towards others. And if you have these tendencies in your own life and you recognize that, you need to be reminded that Jesus wasn't as strict as the Pharisees. It's not like you're you're automatically holier just because your fence is further away. Sanders can also produce 
a false standard of righteousness. You may think that you're okay because you're abiding by an artificial standard, when in fact God may expect far more from you. In other words, man-made standards can be too high or too low. A good example of this in our day is tithing. This is a hot-button topic that all sorts of Christians like to debate about. But I think one issue is that a lot of people that are real big on tithing and they think it's a sin not to tithe, uh, they think that that's all they have to do is tithe and they're automatically right with God. When in fact, uh, the Bible, the New Testament says we're to give generously and cheerfully in proportion as God has blessed us. And we in 21st century America are some of the richest and most prosperous Christians to have ever lived. So 10% may be actually too low of a standard for many of us. Not saying it necessarily is. You need to evaluate your own financial state. And that's the whole point, is I can't make a rule for you. That's up to you to make. That's up to you to study scripture, pray, and seek the Holy Spirit's leading as you evaluate these things. Not just to put a number up there and say, that's what everybody's supposed to do. Lastly, to the saved Pharisees among us, I say this. Focus on the heart, not externals. Jesus taught that there were two main laws that everything else flowed from. Number one, love God with everything you have. Number two, love others as you do yourself. Love for God and love for others should be the motivation for everything else that we do. This should be our primary motivation, not looking good or feeling pious. And this is ultimately the main problem with the Pharisees. If your heart motivations are right, a lot of these dangers can be avoided. I want to quickly put a standard on the table for us to consider, in case you've maybe not been quite following what we're talking about. I want to use the example of movies. I think all of us can agree that there are some movies that are absolutely filthy and inappropriate for Christians to watch. I don't think anyone in this, this room would uh, reasonably disagree with that position. So the question is, where do we put our fence now? The Bible says we're not supposed to set wicked things before our eyes. We're supposed to have purity of mind, think on things that are pure and virtuous. Okay, so where do we put the fence? Some Christians say, I'll watch whatever I want with no fence. I'll just browse through Netflix, click whatever I want and watch it. I think that's an incredibly foolish decision and will lead to sin. So I'm not advocating here that you don't have a standard. If that's your position, I think it won't be long before you're clearly sinning. Others might say, I'll only watch movies after I've looked up a parent's guide online to see what's in them. That's a wise standard. That makes sense to me. You look up online, see what, see what the contents of the movie are, see if there are any uh, bedroom scenes or something, and, and then make your decision on whether or not you're going to watch that based on what that says. Okay, I, I can buy that as a wise standard to keep from sinning. Other Christians might decide to just not watch anything above a certain rating, maybe PG. You say, okay, I'm going to set this as my offense. Nothing, I'm not going to watch PG-13. Okay, that might be a wise standard for you as well. Other Christians have decided only to watch movies in their home where they have a remote and can control what they're seeing rather than at a theater where they have less control. That might be a good standard for you as well. I'm not telling you which one to buy. I'm just giving you some options that people uh, have lived by. And then other Christians have decided that the best thing for them to do is simply not to watch movies altogether. And that may be a good, reasonable decision as well. I'm not, I'm not saying any of those are wrong. Whatever of those options you decide, it may be fine, as long as it's flowing from a sincere desire to please the Lord and live in holiness. It becomes a problem if you think everyone else needs to do what you decide. It becomes a problem when you look with disgust or judgment at someone who came to a different conclusion. It becomes a problem if you teach everyone else your standard instead of teaching them the biblical command underneath the standard and letting them set their own standard. In other words, it would be wrong of me to stand up here and say, 
The Bible teaches you should not watch anything above PG. That would be wrong because the Bible doesn't say that clearly. The Bible does say not to set wicked things before your eyes and to think on pure things. Therefore, my responsibility as a pastor is to tell you, the Bible says this, and then encourage you to consider how those principles apply to your life. And then take a step back and let you put up your own guardrails. It's not my job to set your guardrails for you. Now, on matters that are clearly black and white sins in Scripture, it is my job. Again, we've got to make a distinction there. If you say, well, I can look at pornography because I have a different standard, I say, no, no. Uh, there you've crossed, crossed a clear line. So we do have clear lines in Scripture. But there's not clear lines on everything. We need to acknowledge that. So to recap our study of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were blind to their own sin, and they saw themselves as superior to others. They were quick to judge others who didn't hold to their standards of holiness. They couldn't accept that God would use someone who wasn't like them, and in their eyes had lower standards of holiness. I wasn't going to say this, but I will. I saw something this week that absolutely disgusted me. Uh, and you can have all sorts of opinions on the race riots and things going on in our nation. I'm sure everybody has an opinion in this room. I certainly do. Uh, but I saw a sign that said, and it, somehow it was related to the issue, that said, if Jesus comes back, kill him again. And I was absolutely disgusted by that. And I thought, this is the pharisaical mindset of our day. Because these people honestly think they're more righteous than us. Because they're, they're uh, promoting their, their particular view of racism. Whether they're right or wrong is irrelevant. The point is, they are clearly violating a far more important standard. So anyway, that was just a side note. Uh, the Pharisees were very concerned about how they appeared in the eyes of others, and not concerned with how they appeared in the eyes of God. They did everything to be seen of men. They focused on outward actions while ignoring the heart. Are you a Pharisee this morning? This is a question that I've been asking myself all week as I've been studying these things. Because I see these tendencies in my own life. And depending on your upbringing, depending on your background, depending on your, your standards, uh, we need to be thinking conscientiously. First of all, are my standards of holiness high enough? Again, I'm not advocating everybody drop your standards. I'm advocating you need to get in your own prayer closet with the Lord, study Scripture, and come to your own conclusions. But do so out of a sincere desire to please the Lord. And then, with love, respect when other Christians may disagree with those standards. I want to close by reading one final scripture that I think brings a good balance to our study this morning. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. May we be Christians who have a sincere desire to please the Lord and to live lives of holiness and to zealously serve our God, all the while keeping a close watch over our hearts and ensuring that our motives are pure and our love for each other is genuine. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.